0: Okay, so I want to bring in now just a few supplementary texts, dealing with the seeing of the Four Noble Truths. Okay, so in this sutta, which is in the Sangyuta Nikaya, the Buddha says that the destruction of the asavas, the asavas are very fundamental defilements, is for one who knows and sees, not for one who does not know and does not see. For one who knows and sees what? The destruction of the asavas is for one who knows and sees. This is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. And this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. And so when one sees the Four Noble Truths, then one has sets in motion the process that's going to culminate in the destruction of the asavas the asavas basically include ignorance craving for sensual pleasures and craving for continued migration in samsara And then regarding the four noble truths, there's a number of suttas which speak about a different function in regard to each of the four noble truths. So here the sutta says that there is a noble truth that is to be fully understood, a noble truth to be abandoned, a noble truth to be realized, and a noble truth to be developed. And so the noble truth that is to be fully understood, this is the noble truth of suffering. Because when one is gaining insight into the nature of the five aggregates, seeing the five aggregates as impermanent, dukkha and non-self, then one is gaining deeper and deeper understanding of the five aggregates. And when the practice reaches its culmination, then one could say the noble truth of Dukkha has been fully understood. Then the noble truth of the origin of suffering, this is the cause of Dukkha, this is craving, or sometimes craving and ignorance conjoined. And so this noble truth is to be abandoned. So the task of the practice is to abandon, to eradicate, craving, ignorance, and the associated defilements. Then the noble truth of the cessation of suffering, that is the third noble truth, Nibbana, that is to be realized. And the noble truth of the way, that is the Noble Eightfold Path, the way to the cessation of suffering, that is to be developed, to be cultivated. And then to illustrate the blessing of seeing the Four Noble Truths, here I took a sutta, I think it's from, again, from the Sangyutta Nikaya. Here the Buddha takes up a little bit of, he's walking with the monks, apparently walking someplace, and he stops and he takes up a little bit of soil in his fingernails and then says, what do you think is, what is more? The little bit of soil that I've taken up in my fingernail, or this great earth. And then the monks say, the great earth is, of course, is much more, the little bit of soil you have taken in your fingernail is trifling, just a tiny fraction of the soil on the earth. And so then the Buddha says, so too, for a person accomplished in view, one who has gained that direct seeing of the Four Noble Truths, the suffering or dukkha that has been destroyed and eliminated is more while what remains is trifling, not even a fraction. Because what remains remains just in a maximum of seven more existences. Once one makes that breakthrough to the Four Noble Truths, then one's faring on in samsara is approaching its end. If one is the most sluggish of all, there are just seven more existences. If one makes quicker progress, fewer existences. Okay, so now we come to the last mangala or blessing within this verse. This is Nibbana Satchi Kirya the realization of Nibbāna. Now, when the practitioner makes that breakthrough to the Dhamma and sees the Four Noble Truths, that is not the end of the process of cultivation. At that point, the disciple becomes, as I said, a a stream-enterer, one who has entered the irreversible stream of the Dhamma. But there's still more cultivation to be done in order to reach the final goal right in this life. And so the suttas, they make a distinction of four different levels of attainment or realization. And each level of realization is distinguished. Where's my pointer? In terms of the fetters or defilements that are eliminated, And the number of rebirths or future existences that remain. So with the first breakthrough, stream entry, when one becomes a stream enterer, then one eliminates the three grossest fetters. One is the fetter, the view of some substantial self existing in or in relation to the five aggregates. Because one is now, with that seeing of Nibbana, simultaneously one recognizes the selfless nature of all phenomena. And so one cannot entertain any kind of view, conceptual, formulated view, about a self in or in relation to the five aggregates. One eliminates doubt about the Buddha and the Dharma because one has seen the Dharma and one recognizes this is what the Buddha became enlightened to. It's somewhat like... Well, I don't have a small object. Suppose I had an olive in my hand. (laughs) as long as my hand was closed, you would have doubt about it. But if I open my hand and you saw the olive, then even if I close the hand again, you have no doubt that I'm holding an olive in my hand. So now you've seen the Dhamma, and so all doubt has been eliminated. And there's no longer clinging to precepts or sort of rules of conduct and observances. It doesn't mean that one discards the precepts, (laughs) But there's no longer like the belief that just by observing precepts and undergoing certain observances, especially ritualistic observances or ascetic practices, that one can achieve liberation. Because now one knows that the way to liberation is the full practice of the Noble Eightfold Path. And so one who has reached the stage of stream entry reduces the number of future existences to seven more lives, and those lives will be lived either in the human realm or in one of the celestial or heavenly realms. There's no possibility any more of rebirth in the three lower realms, the hells as an animal, or in the realm of what's sometimes translated hungry ghosts, or I think better, the afflicted spirits. Okay, but supposing now we're going to take a disciple who's going to go all the ways to the end, so the disciple who's now a stream-enterer continues with the practice and reaches the next breakthrough, the next seeing of the Four Noble Truths, the next uh, vision of Nibbāna, or seeing of Nibbāna. With this breakthrough, There's no fetters are completely eliminated, but greed, hatred, and delusion are now weakened. And with the weakening of these three root defilements, the disciple becomes a once-returner, which means that they'll have one more rebirth into the human realm or into the celestial realm, or it could be one rebirth into the celestial realm and then back to the human realm. So one or two more existences. Okay, at as the disciple now continues the practice and then the faculties mature, now the disciple makes the third breakthrough and with this reaches the stage of non-returner. So the non-returner eradicates the two next fetters, which are sensual lust and aversion. And so sensual lust and aversion, those are the two fetters that keep us tied to what is called the sensual realm of existence. And so now when those two fetters are eliminated, the disciple can no longer come back to rebirth into the sensual realm, but they will be reborn into the form realm. This is a very subtle, super divine realm, even above the ordinary heavenly realms. And usually into a sphere, which are called the pure abodes. And there they'll attain final liberation without ever returning to this world. Okay, then the disciple, even though reaching the stage of non-return, but they continue diligently with the practice, and if all of the mental faculties can reach a sufficient degree of maturity, then they'll make the fourth breakthrough, that is, the breakthrough to the stage of arahatship, And with that breakthrough, then they eliminate the the five subtle subtle fetters. These are the desire for existence in the form realm. And then above the form realm, there is still another sphere of existence called the formless realm, where there's no matter, no material substance, but just mental experience. Don't ask me what it's like. (laughs) since it's very difficult to conceive, but those are realms of existence still within samsara. So the beings who are born into the formless realm will live there for, they say, for thousands of aeons, cosmic aeons, but eventually life there comes to an end and the being will be reborn elsewhere, and even coming back to the human realm. So... At this fourth stage, desire for existence in the formless realm is eliminated. Then the subtlest form of conceit is called the conceit I am. This is different from the view of self. The view of self is like a conceptually formulated view. I have a self, or this is myself, or myself exists in relation to the body and mind in some way. But the conceit I am is not intellectually formulated, but it's just sort of a spontaneous notion that comes up, I am, that there is some kind of I lurking here. So that sense or shadow of an I appears, but even to the stream-enterer, the once-returner, the non-returner, but because they've seen into the selfless nature of things, they don't grasp on this notion I am and take it to be indicating something real But it's still there. There's a sutta that compares this subtle conceit I am This is like the old ancient Indian way of doing laundry So they take the dirty clothes which have been stained and you know They have sweat and dirt and they first wash the clothes with a kind of lye or even with cow dung and it gets all of the dirt out, but when you take the clothes out and dry them, there's still the scent of the cow dung or the lye that's been used or salt that's been used to wash the clothes. And that subtle scent of the lye or cow dung, that is like the conceit I am. All of the dirt that's been eliminated, that is like the view of self. But then the person or the laundry launderer will take the clothes and put it in a casket and then put some sticks of sandalwood or some jasmine incense into the casket and leave it for a couple of days. And then the clothes get inundated or permeated with that fragrance of the sandalwood or jasmine incense, and they become sweet smelling, and all of that smell of the cow dung, salt, or lye, gets gets well, lime gets eliminated. So that is like purging the mind of the conceit "I am." And then there's a subtle restlessness, even in the mind of the non-returner, very, very subtle, that is now gone. And even the subtlest traces of ignorance, that is now eliminated. And so now with the attainment of arahatship, all of the ten fetters have been eliminated. And so the arahat is not reborn anywhere in any realm, but with the pasic, during life the arahat will experience the bliss of Nibbana, and with the breakup of the body, of course the arhat is not experiencing the bliss of nirvana all the time, but there's in normal consciousness they'll experience the input of sensory, sensory data, they'll experience pleasure and pain, or at least bodily pleasure and pain, and mental pleasure. They'll experience mental pleasure, but no mental pain, no sorrow, grief, worry, lamentation, despair, and so on. And then with the breakup of the body, the passing away, then they attain the ultimate deathless element, nibbana. Okay, so then we come now to the last verse. Okay, so this is taking you through these four stages to the stage of arhatship. That becomes the realization of Nibbana in this life. And now the last full verse, the last verse of blessings, takes us to... I have the category for this. I call this fulfillment, or embodying the world transcending Dhamma in the world. Okay, so, putasa loka dhammehi.
1: Putasa loka
0: Damehi Chitang yasa nakampati. Chitang yasa nakampati. Asokang virajang kemang. etang mangalam uttamang etang mangalam Okay, so putassa means touched, touched by, contacted by, loka damehi. This is literally by worldly phenomena, the phenomena or states of the world. Here it's translated a little freely, the vicis- vicissitudes of life. Chitang is mind, yasa, for whom, Nakampati does not shake. So the mind of such a one is not shaken, not disturbed, does not vacillate when touched by worldly states, by the vicissitudes of life. And that mind is described as a soung. Sorrowless, virajang, stainless, or literally dustless, and kemang, secure. This is the highest blessing. And so, maybe the key word here to understand the verse is lokadamehi. And sometimes these, the loka dame here is explained in terms of what are called the four pairs of worldly opposites. So the four pairs of worldly opposites is gain and loss, then fame and disrepute, then blame and praise and pleasure and pain. And so here, in this text, when describing the mind of the Arahāt, the Buddha says, Gain and loss do not obsess his mind. Fame and disrepute do not obsess his mind. Blame and praise, pleasure and pain do not obsess his mind. He's not attracted by that to which ordinary people are attracted, not repelled by loss, disrepute, blame or pain. So having discarded attraction and repulsion, he is freed from birth, old age, and death, from sorrow, lamentation, pain, dejection, and anguish. So this There's one way to understand how the mind is not shaken by worldly condition, by worldly states, but rather the mind remains stable, tranquil, in a state of constant equipoise so that it can look upon all of these changing experiences, blame and praise, gain and loss with equanimity. So that sorrowless, then virajang, stainless, or death, or dustless, and that means that the mind is now free from ruddy dust. Is a kind of metaphor for the defilements, the mental defilements, greed, hatred, and delusion. So the mind is dustless because free of all the defilements, and kajang. Oh, actually, here I have some verses which illustrate the relationship between being virajing, stainless or here, passionless, and being sorrowless. So these verses are from the Dhammapada. So it says, from attachment springs sorrow. So the attachment is a kind of dust or stain. And then from this springs sorrow, from attachment springs fear. For one who is wholly free from attachment there is no sorrow, whence then fear? Then from lust springs sorrow, from lust springs fear. For one who is free from lust there is no sorrow, whence then fear? From craving springs sorrow, from craving springs fear. For one who is free from craving There is no sorrow, whence then fear. So this is, we've covered asokang and virajang, then comes kemang, which means secure. And so I had a passage to illustrate this. Here a monk who's achieved arhatship is speaking to the Buddha, and he says, when a monk is perfectly liberated in mind, even if powerful, disturbing forms come into range of the eye, they do not obsess his mind, but his mind is not at all disturbed. Instead, their mind remains steady, imperturbable, and he observes its passing away. And so even if powerful sounds, odors, tastes, tactile objects or powerful mental phenomena come into range of the mind, they do not obsess the mind, the mind is not affected, but again it remains steady, imperturbable, and he observes, it's vanishing. And then the speaker compares this to a mountain made of solid stone without any clefts or fissures. Fish, fissures. And so if a violent rainstorm comes, the mountain could not be made to quake, wobble and tremble. And so too, when the monk is perfectly liberated in mind, even if powerful forms or any other objects come into range, they do not obsess his mind but his mind remains steady and imperturbable and he observes its occurrence and its vanishing. Okay, so with this we see this is sometimes called the constant abiding of the arhat. This is unshakable equanimity through the six sense faculties, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body and mind. And so all of the verses now culminate in this, the living attainment of arahatship. And then we come to the last verse, which is a kind of summing up of the whole sequence of the Mangala Sutta. So we can recite together, Tadisani katvana. sabatam parajitah sabatam sabata soting sabata soting Gachanti tam kachanti tam te samangalamuttamam te okay so the meaning is those who have fulfilled all of these conditions, they are victorious everywhere. They attain security everywhere. And then, now he doesn't say this is the highest blessing, but he says, Taesang, which means for them, there is the highest blessing. And so that concludes the sutta, and then we could do just a kind of retrospect of what we've covered through the last couple of days. And so a deity comes to the Buddha and says that for a long time human beings and deities have been pondering this question, what is a blessing, what is the highest blessing? Please, venerable one, tell us what is truly the highest blessing, what is auspicious? Then the Buddha starts at the appropriate beginning, laying down a kind of ground plan or blueprint for a blessed life, starting with proper orientation, by which one cultivates these conditions for acquiring discretion, the ability to distinguish right from wrong, good and bad, what is wholesome and unwholesome. Then one proceeds to establish secure foundations, living in a suitable place, having done merits in the past and with determination, with right resolution, setting oneself in a good direction, on the right course. Then to prepare oneself for life in the world, one obtains a basic education, a well-rounded education, some training in a craft, a skill, a profession, one acquires a code of discipline, could be the five precepts to help mold one's conduct, and one learns how to speak appropriately, well-spoken speech. Then, if one decides to embark upon family life, okay, as a token of gratitude towards one's mother and father, one honors them by one's good conduct and then supports them when they're no longer able to support themselves. One maintains a wife or husband and children and one works at a harmless occupation and then extending one's range of concern beyond one's immediate family, then to become a pillar of society. One practices generosity. One follows the course of righteous conduct, the ten ways of wholesome karma. One assists relatives and friends and people in one's community. And one engages in various other kinds of blameless actions. So with all of this, one is fulfilling, you say, the family responsibilities and the life of social, social ethics. But now one is going to embark on the path to liberation by becoming specifically a disciple of the Buddha and embarking on the graduated path. So one begins with personal ethics to develop, to lead a life of moral integrity. So one will again take the five precepts now in a more formal way, committing oneself to, as a pledge to observe these precepts, abstaining from killing, stealing, and so on. And with special emphasis, one refrains from intoxicating drinks which cause heedlessness and reckless behavior. And one becomes heedful in wholesome practices, particularly in the training of the mind to eliminate unwholesome mental states and develop virtuous and wholesome mental states. Okay, then to go further after taking that passing beyond those negative practices of refraining and abstaining, now to, one cultivates inner virtues and wisdom through reverence, humility, contentment, gratitude, patience, the acceptance of advice. One is developing inner virtues, and then through timely hearing of the Dhamma, seeing renunciants, approaching them, questioning them, and discussion on the Dhamma, one is developing, even at an elementary level, the seeds of wisdom and right understanding. Then, in order to devote oneself more diligently, more intensively towards realization, one undertakes the practice of the world-transcending Dhamma by leading a life or by undertaking what is called austerity, that's the practice of right effort, by embarking on the Noble Eightfold Path. And if one feels the call to monastic life, or even in lay life, one could also observe celibacy. And then one cultivates, through the Noble Eightfold Path, the practices, uh, first with the foundation of right view, right intention, Again, the ethical practices as a basis, right speech, right action, right livelihood, and then through right effort and right mindfulness, one develops serenity, samatha, culminating in samadhi, concentration, and insight, which will bring wisdom, experiential wisdom. And when the development of the meditative serenity and insight reach a culminating point. There comes the direct seeing of the Four Noble Truths. And then as one cultivates that realization or that breakthrough to the Four Noble Truths, one proceeds from stage to stage until one realizes the ultimate goal, Nibbana. And then as one lives with nibbanic realization in the world, One has a mind that is unshaken by the fluctuations of worldly states, a mind that remains sorrowless, that is stainless, free from dust and passion, and secure. And in that way one achieves, one becomes victorious everywhere. Okay, so that takes us to the... It's quite a wonderful sutta, you know. When you read it, it's just 12 verses, and it just goes with, you can't see, it just seems like one word or one phrase is following another, and you can't really take it all in. But then when you start to explore it, and then take its implications, and then the way I've done, I'll share this file with the group, you look through the sutta collection and find other passages which illustrate each of these factors, then you get a very, very full picture of the Buddhist practice according to the Nikayas. <laughs> okay, I think we have some time. As I said I would leave like a period for questions, like open floor for questions. Yes, please. And then please, when you're going to speak, Savannah, was that, were you Savannah? Lillian. Lillian, I'm sorry, okay. Maybe I shouldn't try to test my my bad memory.
1: In the file you're going to send us, I wondered if it would include, there was a passage I missed on the screen um, about uh, blamelessness. It was under contentment. The... um, it
0: was The Happiness of Blamelessness. Oh, I think that's here. I'm sure that's here. we would love
1: to see it again. Uh, if it's in the file you're going to send us,
2: that's fine.
0: Um... Yeah, the bliss of blamelessness that is here. Yeah, yeah, it's here. It's in that file. It, it will be in the file. It's in the file, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Bhante. Yeah. Um, Again,
3: your name? Uh, you. Snay. Snay. Sne. Sne. Okay. Um, I was wondering if you would elaborate on um, two aspects of anatta that you had talked about. One was when you trace the link from impermanence to dukkha to yeah. anatta, and I missed understanding the transition from um, dukkha to anatta. Okay. And the second one was when you were talking about understanding anatta in overcoming um, conceit and developing humility. Yeah.
0: Okay, these are two questions, so let's take them one at a time. Okay, Okay, from dukkha to anatta, it actually strikes me, though the suttas they always use this pattern of, I think I have it here, though I didn't recite it. Yeah this is the sort of stuck formulation. Okay so the Buddha is speaking to a person named Sona. He says what do you think is form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, Bhante. Is what is impermanent, dukkha or happiness? Dukkha or sukha? Then the answer is dukkha. Then is what is impermanent, dukkha and subject cha- to change fit to be regarded thus this is mine, this I am, this is myself. And then the answer is no, Bhante. So the way we find this in the sutta, it goes from impermanence to dukkha, then it brings together impermanent dukkha, and subject to change is just another way of saying impermanence. And then that leads into non-self, that's non-self. But it seems to me that really the key to non-self is rather... Primarily impermanence, because what is impermanent? you see, within the Indian way of thinking, the Indian way of thinking at the time of the Buddha, if there is to be a self, it has to be something which has some stability, some endurance or persistence. And if something arises and passes away, then it can't be a self, because then you would have to say, my self has arisen and passed away. And I'm here saying that myself has passed away. So it seems that one can go directly from impermanence to non self. So one looks at the five aggregates, bodily form, it has some endurance, but when we really look at the microscopic level, even bodily form, like the cells, the molecules of the body, always arising and passing. Then, even more evidently, States of feelings, always arising and passing, so they can't be taken to be self. Um, Perceptions, always changing. Perception of sights, sounds, tastes, odors, touch, sensations, ideas, again, arising and passing. The mental activities, wanting this, deciding on this, planning this, those states always arising and changing. And then what the Upanishadic thinkers, the Brahminic thinkers, would take primarily to be the self is the consciousness, the awareness of all of this. But for the Buddha, consciousness also arises through conditions. So consciousness is always arising and ceasing as well. And so therefore consciousness too is not a self. So in this way, we can go pretty much directly from impermanence to non-self. But it seems the dukkha aspect is thrown in because what is impermanent is considered to be defective or flawed or unsatisfactory. And so one doesn't want to identify myself as something that's defective or unsatisfactory. And so for that reason when one sees that all of these five aggregates are impermanent one understands they're defective and one doesn't want to identify with them so that was the first question then there was another
3: anatta as understanding not self and helping using that to develop humility and overcome conceit
0: okay okay yeah so this is what i say is a reflective method to deal with conceit So, if we, let us say, we do something (laughs) remarkable, worthy, something that wins praise and admiration from others, or we get assigned to a high position, then there's a tendency, like for some self-congratulation to set in, some self-inflation, I must be great, I must be wonderful, I got to be elected president of the United States. Maybe <laughs> I should. Maybe I should run. <laughs> Bante Bodhi for. What's the next one? Twenty. Twenty twenty. <laughs> yeah, let's start. If one New Yorker can do it, another one can. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Brooklyn Bodhi. <laughs> they make a nice campaign slogan. <laughs> okay, so the self-inflation comes in, self-congratulations. So to counteract that, from to prevent that turning into conceit, then one just, even without this deep insight into non-self, but just reflectively one considers this is not really mine. There's no real I here, this is not myself, it's just the unfolding of conditions. And then this helps to sort of break up that, or to block that tendency to conceit and to induce a sense of humility. It's a little bit like a counterpart to the Christians, devout Christians, when they have some kind of su- success for good fortune, they think, this is not really my doing, but this comes to me through the grace of God. So I'm not really responsible for this. I'm just a fortunate beneficiary of God's goodwill and love. And so that will induce humility in them. So our counterpart to that is to reflect through the lens of non-self. Okay, please, please take the microphone. And, and...
4: Hi, Bonte. Uh, my name is Brian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a couple questions. If the first one in regards to the consciousness you yeah. were just mentioning, yesterday you you were mentioning how um, the consciousness uh, that essentially transmigrates into the yeah. next life. Yeah. Is that? the same consciousness as the consciousness that arises at contact, at sense contact, Mm -hmm. or is that a different consciousness?
0: Okay, this is a pretty complex question. Okay. I have to think to get my frame of reference for answering it. Okay, let's put it this way. Constantly in the course of life, whenever there is a sensory contact takes place, there is a consciousness that corresponds to that sensory input. And so there's a constant succession of sometimes visual consciousness, hearing consciousness, smelling consciousness, tasting consciousness, tactile consciousness, and then inner reflective consciousness, which is taking as its object ideas, images, judgments, plans, thoughts, and so on. So these are the six ty- the six types of consciousness. And these types of, these states of consciousness are arising and passing away. So none of them is a permanent lasting entity that can serve as the basis for designation as a true self. But now this stream of consciousness continues through the course of life till one comes to the moment of death. Now, at death, what's going to take place is that as long as there is ignorance, craving, and clinging within the stream of consciousness, well, as long as this body is alive, then they are happily housed, accommodated within this body. They have the body as support. But when this body ceases to function, the grasping is still there the ignorance is still there and they're housed within that stream of consciousness. But this body can't support that stream of consciousness anymore. And so that ignorance craving and grasping is going to propel that stream of consciousness. It's no longer seeing, hearing, smelling, and so on, but they drive that stream of consciousness towards the new physical body in one or another of the realm of, realms of existence. That corresponds to the karmic accumulations. And then the stream of consciousness arises based on that new physical body.
4: Thank you. Uh, next question is, is about stream entry. Yeah. So, this, uh, I'd like to, if I could just divide it into two questions. One question is whether or not stream entry occurs as one flash, one momentary experience. Yeah or if it could be a, a gradual unfolding? Yeah. And then related to that, um, with the criteria of stream entry, both you know, people who've been practicing for a while, typically the, the view of self tends to dissolve to some extent yeah, yeah. Um, and the other characteristics. But is there a subjective way to know if one has mm. attained that?
0: OK, I think there are two questions there. The,
4: the first was, is it a sudden flash? Okay, okay. Yeah,
0: I simplified a little in the presentation because to avoid getting into rather com- technical complexity. Sorry. No, that's okay. But there is, say, the attainment of stream entry takes place in two stages. This one stage is called entering upon the path, or descent, literally, it's entering upon the fixed course of rightness. And this is a a certain point that said that a certain change takes place, a transformation takes place, whereby one enters upon the fixed course of rightness. And this seems to be an extended period of time where one is on the path, and then, What the text says is that such a person cannot pass away without having realized the fruit of stream entry. So it seems that one is on the path and is continuing to cultivate the path factors. And then at a certain point when those path factors are mature, then there comes the breakthrough experience whereby one becomes a stream enterer. So it seems that the actual attainment of stream entry is a sudden experience like the sudden enlightenment, but there comes an entry upon the path and then one has to cultivate over some time until the fruit is realized. And this is the sutta presentation. I mean, if you're familiar with the visuddhi Magga or commentarial system, there's a certain tension between them that I've pointed out in some of the, the introductions to some of my translations. In the commentarial Visuddhimagga system the path is regarded as a single mind moment which is followed immediately by the fruition moment. So in that perspective, everything is just one flash, so to speak. Path moment, then split second later, fruition moment. But from the sutta perspective, it seems that the path is extended. A specific time is not given. All that's said is that once the person enters the path, they can't pass away without realizing the fruit. And then, how does a person know whether a stream enterer or not? The thing is that people can have what's called they can overestimate themselves because people, when they practice intensive meditation, they sometimes have Dramatic experiences and think, ah, that must mean I'm a stream enterer. And particularly the problem with stream entry is that the things that are, the fetters that are eliminated are all cognitive factors. So you could say, since you know you've learned the Dhamma, so you know the Buddha's teaching on non self, so you say, I don't accept any view of self, so I've gotten rid of sakaya ditti my practice has been beneficial, so I don't have doubt, and as to these rituals and blind observances, I was never interested in them anyway, (laughs) (laughs) so I must be a stream enter. (laughs) You know, so that's an area where one could easily overestimate oneself, so for that it was probably good to speak to the really accomplished master who could question one and you know, find out you know, exactly where you are, what you've gone through, what you've experienced. I think when it gets to um, non-returners, the test is a little bit easier because if you see that the person gets angry on occasion, <laughs> like I remember there was, when I was in Sri Lanka, there was one a Western monk who was there who would make indirect hints that he would say, when I practiced under such and such, I reached the third fruit. And then some of us would say like, well, from your behavior, we have some reasons to doubt that. Say, who are you to question me? thank you. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Somebody, I thought somebody here had. Oh, please.
2: Uh, I'd like to follow up on Brian's question. Yeah. It's original. And your name again. Now? My name is MAME. May. Okay. Mayma. Mayna. May. M a m um, e. He asked about and I'm afraid I won't say it right you can correct me but the transmission of consciousness at the moment of death and you said that it is driven by the continued clinging to um, greed delusion and um, Mm -hmm. hatred and so but isn't this just the accumulation of karma from the life that's ending isn't it is is there actual i'm trying to understand the difference between consciousness and the accumulation of Hmm. of karma or is there no difference
0: Maybe we could put it this way that using sort of metaphor or imagery to help get a a grip on this, we could think of consciousness maybe as a repository and then the karma as being seeds that are deposited in that repository. And so the consciousness is preserving the karmic potentials, the seeds of karma, and transmitting them. But consciousness is not the same thing as karma. Karma is volitional action, volitional action, and then the kind of potentials or seeds that are deposited in the stream of mind the stream of consciousness those potentials which can ripen when they meet conditions and then bring results that correspond to the ethical nature of the karma but the consciousness is what holds the karmic seeds together and in its normal functioning consciousness is what in our normal experience, what is responsible for seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, knowing tactile sensations, being aware of ideas and thoughts. But consciousness also has this other function of holding together the different mental tendencies, dispositions, and the karmic potentials. And so at death, all of those other functions of consciousness come to an end but consciousness evolves on or moves on, preserving the mental tendencies and dispositions and the karmic potentials, and brings them into the next life. Okay. Please.
1: Thank you, Pante. Shelley is my name. Your
0: Shelley. Yeah.
1: So what holds the consciousness? Is it awareness?
0: I, you know, there are many different implications of the word awareness. So I say that consciousness is, or its primary function is awareness. But I don't know what what you're driving at when you say what holds the consciousness.
1: I'm not quite sure what I'm driving at either. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, So, one can be aware of all of these elements and
0: factors,
1: and one can be aware of one's consciousness.
0: Yeah, one could also actually, consciousness has a reflexive capacity, so one could turn back, sort of bend back and become aware of, one becomes aware, I would say, primarily of the contents of the mind. Yes, and one could become aware that one is has been conscious of this or of that,
1: yeah. and then one can also have an awareness yeah. of awareness of yeah. the expanded,
0: yeah,
1: uh, state yeah. that's perhaps out of the realm of normal mundane activity. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of holding the whole life. Yeah. And I'm just curious about that awareness of awareness as it, yeah. as it directs yeah. one's consciousness, so to speak. In other words...
0: Well, I would say that what is aware is consciousness. Not that I don't I don't make a distinction between awareness and consciousness. Consciousness is the say, there are many different nuances of the word awareness, but taking it in one sense, I would say consciousness is what is aware. Like I'm aware of people in front of me. That is through my first my eye consciousness, visual consciousness takes in the forms and then the mind consciousness in a very quick in a very quick way interprets the forms as being people in front of me. So this is awareness as a function of visual and mental consciousness. And then one can sort of bend back consciousness, though there's a debate whether even within Buddha circles, whether consciousness can be aware of itself simultaneously, like one school of thought held that consciousness has I think it's svavedana, self-awareness, so that one is, at the the very moment when I'm aware of a visible form, I'm aware of my awareness of that visible form. So that's one position. Then (laughs) the opposing schools said, no, there's not simultaneous self-awareness, but what's happening is that there's a very rapid oscillation between the direct moment of direct visual awareness and then an immediately subsequent awareness of that visual awareness. But this gets into these dizzying scholastic (laughs) arguments that go on, and if the Buddha were alive, he would say, what are you arguing about, (laughs) Marx? What I teach is Dukkha and the cessation of Dukkha. How? What has happened to my teaching?
1: <laughs>
0: Thank you. Okay, way in the back. Yeah.
4: Hi, Bonte. I, I'm also named Brian. Mm. Um,
2: could you say something more about what does it mean to timely hear the Dharma or to timely discuss the Dharma? Is it a karmic, is it a condition? Or
0: No, it just means, I would say from time to time or when it's every once in a while or when the opportunity arises. You know, if there's like a Dharma discourse scheduled and say within the Buddhist countries... Well, it used to be, like in the past, they would have on, say, in a country like Sri Lanka, on the full moon day and the dark moon day, there would be, those are called the Uposita days or the poya days. Then there would be, those are the special uh, traditional observance days. And so then there would be like regular Dhamma discourses scheduled in virtually all of the major temples and monasteries. But now, with the acceptance of the Western c- calendar, so now the Dhamma discourses might be scheduled primarily on like weekends, as well as still on the full moon day. Thank you. Yeah. So, it's no special philosophical significance should be ascribed to that. It just means whenever there's from time to time, or whenever the opportunity opens up. Yes, please.
5: Thank you so much for this weekend, it's been Mm. awesome. Um, Just, you know, there's so many practices in in Buddhism, right? There's loving kindness, there's mindfulness, concentration, et cetera, et cetera. Did the Buddha give any kind of rules of thumb about which practice is suitable at which time? Sort of Mm. like, so you have so much to choose
0: from. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Actually, there are some simple rules of thumb that come, one could find within the suttas, and then it, sort of the assignments of topics become more elaborate in a work like the Visuddhimagga, sort of which inherits the commentarial tradition. So the Buddha says that for one who's troubled by much sensual lust, the appropriate meditation is meditation on the impure or unattractive nature of the body. It's called the asubha sanya, you know, like the 32 parts of the body. And then for one who's troubled by anger and ill will, the appropriate practice is metta bhavana, the development of loving-kindness. For one who's troubled by distracting thoughts, then The good method is mindfulness of breathing. So this is sort of a simple way of, um, or for one who has sort of the temperament inclined towards faith and devotion, then one of the recollections on the three jewels, recollection of the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, is appropriate. Then the, the Visuddhimagga has a section in which it analyzes people's temperaments into six kinds, the lustful temperament, the angry or hostile temperament, the deluded temperament, then the faithful temperament, the one who's inclined to faith, the intelligent or intellectual temperament, and the discursive temperament and then it takes the traditional 40 meditation subjects and divides them up according to what is suitable for which of these temperaments but basically i mean i would say that one doesn't have to take that too rigid and too rigid a sense and or start flipping around from one meditation subject to another but what I think is sort of good to use as an anchor point or foundation would be a meditation subject which that helps to develop a fundamental mindfulness, such as mindfulness of breathing, either around here or the sort of Burmese variant on this, observing the rise and fall of the abdomen. And then one could sort of to balance out the practice, one could add like. Short periods of loving kindness meditation, or some other, or even actually, what I found useful is to add a short period of the recollection of death, the meditation on death, since it helps to as a counteract a countermeasure to the tendency towards negligence or heedlessness. So, if one even just five minutes. At the beginning of the day one reflects that death is absolutely certain the arrival of death the time of its arrival absolutely unpredictable i don't know when i leave this place we can be walking to the train station and car comes zooming down and gone i don't know so when one reflects in this way then it helps one to keep one's mind fixed on the path Okay, yeah.
1: Hi, my name is Dorothy. Yeah. So you had mentioned, and I, I think the metta practice is so useful, but yeah. that fourth Brahma Vihara of equanimity, you said there was a meditation one can do around yeah. that. Yeah. Do you have any of the words, or will that, can you maybe send it to us? or? <laughs>
0: I have to say, I confess that I've never really succeeded very much with that one. (laughs) It's a hard one. It's said that, and maybe this is a little too rigid, but it's said that in order to do the fourth Brahma-Vihara, one should gain skill in the first three, in the loving-kindness, compassion... And altruistic joy and then to transform from those to equanimity then one brings into mind beings and one starts off with a person you know with loving kindness one starts off with the respected person and the dear person the neutral person the hostile person with compassion one takes the person who is suffering with altruistic joy, somebody one knows, who has undergone some good, that one knows and one has a good feeling for, that one, a person that one likes, who is undergoing some success and one rejoices in that, and then from those people one expands outward. To develop equanimity, like one method that I've heard recommended, is to take a completely neutral person and then consider how one doesn't really have particular liking or disliking for that person, then one takes the people that one likes and brings them into focus and considers these people could have been just like strangers passing me on the street or fellow passengers on the subway train that have no liking or disliking for. So because of conditions, I'm now close to them. But if conditions were a little different, They could be complete strangers, and so one develops sort of one lets the liking subside towards that person and looks at them with equanimity. Then after one gets some strength with that, then cautiously one could bring the person one dislikes into range of one's awareness. And then one reflects that because of conditions, I have some tense relationship with this person, But if conditions were a little different, that person could be completely, you know, a complete stranger to me. And then one tries to develop equanimity towards that person. Thank you. Okay, so we go in the back here, and then over.
1: Thank you, Ponte. I am Caroline. Um, Caroline. Caroline. Yeah. Okay. my question is, um, so from a different instructor, Like I guess it, co- it comes down to how do you define mindfulness?
0: Oh, there are so many different... Yeah,
1: so I, recently I heard one instructor who had defined it as paying attention with equanimity.
0: one could say attentiveness, maybe equanimity is an ideal but there can be mindfulness even when there's not perfect equanimity. I don't really like to get into definitions of mindfulness because I don't think I have formulated a very clear definition for myself. Um, Some definitions that I've seen apply to the practice of mindfulness under some conditions but maybe they don't they don't necessarily cover the whole range of practices that come under the designation of mindfulness.
1: Okay. I guess I'm trying to figure out when I'm being mindful and when I'm not.
0: Okay, let me just maybe try at least... It won't be a perfectly adequate explanation, but what I would say is mindfulness is the bending back of Awareness upon oneself so that one is taking towards one's own experience somewhat of the position of a detached observer, putting oneself under observation, one's body and mental experiences experiences are always, one's body and one's experiences, putting them under a kind of detached observation. And so whatever arises, one observes it and notes it. This is one aspect of mindfulness. It's not necessarily a complete definition.
1: That's very helpful. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Bante, for this weekend. Um... Yeah, by the way, I have an article. It was published. It was a book, an anthology that was put together by... John Kabat-Zinn years ago I think his was just called mindfulness it was, the book was just called mindfulness but I have the first essay in that book and it's called what does mindfulness really <laughs> what does mindfulness really mean a canonical perspective and I think you could find it on the internet if you search for that and I do like a survey of um different explanations of mindfulness from the, the Pali canon. Yeah, please. Hi. Um, and your name?
3: Kev, my name
5: is Kevin.
0: Kevin, OK.
5: My question is, when, when someone becomes or achieves arahatship, yeah. uh, two of the fetters that are um, dropped are uh, desire for rebirth in the sense realms and yeah. desire for rebirth in the formless realms. Yeah. And my question is, um, I've always kind of wondered, is there any, any sort of relation between those realms and the jhanas and the formless oh, jhanas? Oh, yeah. Okay,
0: okay. Yeah, it's actually, what the arahata eliminates is the desire for rebirth in the form realm and the formless realm. Yeah, you had said in the sense realm. Oh, oh. Yeah, but I think you meant to say in the form realm. Okay, the way it's explained in the suttas, there's a definite correlation between <clears throat> the jhanas and the form realm. And beyond the jhanas there are four other attainments called the four formless attainments. So there's a correlation between those state attainments and rebirth in the formless realm. So there's a sutta which says that if the meditator attains, say the and then the form realm is divided into four levels conveniently into four four levels and each level corresponds to one or another of the four jhanas so say a meditator meditates ach- achieves attains and achieves mastery over the first jhana but nothing beyond that that and then repeatedly is able to enter into that jhana and preserves the jhana through the rest of their life, not losing it through carelessness and negligence. So that jhanic attainment, when they enter into it, it is creating the karmic force that leads to rebirth into the first level of the form realm. If they go further and then achieve and master the second jhana and preserve it up to the time of death, then that attainment of the second jhana is generating the karma that leads to rebirth into the second level of the form realm. And so for each of the third and fourth jhanas, then if the meditator goes beyond into the formless attainments, the lowest is called the base of the boundlessness of space that will lead to rebirth in the first level of the formless realm which is the sphere of boundless space. Then the second is the attainment of the base of boundless consciousness, and that will lead to rebirth in the corresponding realm, the base of boundless consciousness. And then similarly for the next two, the base of nothingness, the base of neither perception nor non-perception. Okay, thank you.
5: Hi, Hi, Bonte. Um, Thank you. Hmm. Um, So one of the things that I wonder about, maybe as related to sort of to Kevin's question, um, I know that concentration is really an important part of meditation. And I know when we go on retreats, you know, it's always... You know, in the woods, and it's very quiet. Yeah. And in a lot of the Buddha suttas, he talks about going yeah. into the forest and yeah. sitting under trees. Yeah. And I'm just wondering is it possible for us as New Yorkers to develop a strong practice? And are we limited by our environment here in New York City? Or is that just an excuse?
0: <laughs> what I would say is that for some, su- probably for some, to practice a remote and quiet and secluded place is most desirable because it said that sound or noise is a the expression uses a thorn for the first even for the first jhana so sound just like disturbing sounds can be considered like an obstacle um you know this is what is said in the text and in the text the buddha always when he's giving advice for somebody who wants to go off to meditate to achieve the jhanas. One goes to the forest, to the foot of a tree, to a hillside cave and similar places. But I've also heard of meditators living in mo- town and city monasteries who are jhana attainers <laughs> or have very high, highly developed practice. So even though, ideally, like the ideal condition for deep samadhi practice is a quiet place, but I'd say living in an urban environment is not necessarily an obstacle for deep meditation, but I'd say that the kind of meditation that might be more appropriate for living in the city would be something like, excuse me, The system of mindfulness meditation that has emerged from Burma, like, you know, from the Burmese like Mahasi tradition, in which one is aiming at the development of strong mindfulness in order to be aware of whatever is occurring from moment to moment. So within the framework of that practice, even sounds, noises, are not necessarily an obstacle to the practice because one can turn them into aids or objects of the practice just by noting them with mindfulness. And so what I heard, I haven't been to Burma, but like Mahase Soyado's monastery or meditation center, (laughs) it was located within Yangon, Rangoon, and there's a lot of traffic and cars going by and, you know, motorcycles going by and the inevitable <laughs> suitable for me the multitude of dogs around the monastery barking <laughs> and yet people go through their training there and come out with advanced stages of insight and I remember years ago I went to Gowenka's center in India, this is Dhammagiri, and to my surprise Surprise, like just on the other side of the hill. I don't know if it's still there, but there was a police academy and every morning I would be sitting and there would be rifle practice going <laughs> on. <Yeah. laughs> so you hear the rifle firing and yet people are meditating without being disturbed by it. Well, some I was disturbed by it. <laughs> Maybe some are on this term. Thank you. Yeah, yeah please.
3: Thank you, Pante. I was wondering, at the end of this sutra where we talk about fulfillment, is that
0: Speak about. the
3: the last uh, verse on fulfillment? Yeah. Does that take you to be a Buddha? Because, you know, in the, in the
0: Take to, take you. to become a buddha? To? A
3: buddha. A buddha.
0: To buddha, to. I see, I see.
3: Because in the first evening, I think you had said there are three levels okay, of, okay. of buddha. Okay, yeah, huh? yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That is describing the mind of the arahat. And now, the buddha is also an arahat. And so, in a sense, like that is an aspect of the buddha's attainment. Though... This is an aspect that will be common to the disciple arhats and to the Buddha, but the Buddha has also many, well even the arhats have also many other qualities and um, abilities which are not included within that verse, but I think this verse is set out because the original question was what is the supreme mangala's supreme blessing, and now the Buddha by bringing the poem to its culmination in that verse, is showing that the supreme blessing is the mind that's completely virajang, free from all dust of the defilements, and therefore is sorrowless and secure. So, this will be like the common or shared attainment of both the Buddha and the Arhat disciples. Okay, maybe we'll make this then the last question, and then we'll do final little meditation, and then the sharing of the merits. So it, uh, from what I understood of what you said about
5: the transition to nibbana, is that you know, one with strong mindfulness kind of sees the three characteristics of yeah. impermanence, yeah, yeah,
0: not self, yeah. and dukkha. Yeah, it's especially insight. Mindfulness is the base but it's the insight that's needed to see the three characteristics. Yeah,
5: so you, see, so you penetrate that and you see it. And then, you know, with mindfulness, you can direct the mind to observe different things. You could direct the mind to, towards seeing impermanence and, yeah, right. So once, once the mind is ripe and goes to nibbana, if nibbana is the deathless and is always here, can one direct the mind directly to nibbana? You oh, know, you without, know
0: without going through?
5: Without going through, yeah. Like if... Okay, okay.
0: Now, there is mentioned in the suttas and elaborated more in the Visuddhimagga a reflective contemplation on Nibbana, but that is not an experiential realization of Nibbana. This is a technique of calming meditation to help to calm the mind down. So, if the reflection goes, this is the peaceful, this is the excellent, that is, the stilling of all volitional activities, the relinquishment of all clinging, the destruction of craving, um, the, the dispassion, Nibbāna. So, that is just a reflective contemplation on the qualities of Nibbāna but it's not an actual realization of Nibbāna. To realize Nibbāna, one has to go not through reflection, but through insight into the three characteristics and bring that insight to deeper and deeper levels until one arrives at the kind of boundary between the conditioned and the unconditioned. And then when the faculty of insight becomes fully mature, then one breaks through that boundary and experiences the Nibbana.
5: Can I have one follow-up question? Yeah. Did, Did the Buddha ever describe the subjective experience of that, or
0: not really? You know, it's always described in terms of that formula. So like, well, sometimes it's that he turns his mind to the deathless element and then comes sort of in quotation marks, this is the excellent, this is the peaceful, this is the excellent, the stilling of all volitional activities, the relinquishment of clinging, dispassion, Nibbana. So he doesn't try to go into too much conceptual elaboration, because it's experiential. Okay, so let us end our retreat. We'll do like, about 15 minutes of quiet meditation and if you have experience with the loving kindness meditation because now we want to share sort of the blessings of listening to, about, to the suit about blessings to share it with other beings so generate the wish, the thought may all beings be well and happy if you do a, a systematic metta meditation you could work in the systematic way And then we'll close with the sharing of the merits with the deities and the other beings. can do the verses for sharing of the merits. So now we're going to share the merits from the entire three-day retreat with the devas, the deities of the sky and of the earth, the nagas, the dragon spirits that regulate the weather. And asking them to rejoice in the merits, to protect the sasana, the Buddha's teaching, to protect the Desana, the exposition of the teaching, to protect ourselves and the world. Akasata Bhumata Devanagamahidika. Panyantang anumoditva, chirang rakantu sasanam, akasatachabhumata, deva naga mahidhika. panyantang anumoditva, chirang rakantu desanam, Akāsatā ca bhūmatā naga mehidika, Panyantang anumodhītva Chīrāng rakāntu maṅparāng Etāvatā Sampadāng puṇya-sampadāng Sabe de vanumodantu, saba sampati siddhya. Etavatachamhehi, sampadang punya sampadang, sabe bhutanumodantu, saba sampati siddhya. Atavatachamhehi, Sampadang punya sampadang, Sabhe Satanumodantu, Sampati Siddhya, punya sampadang, Sabhe Sabha Sampati rupi Rupicha Asanya Sanyino Dukapamuchantu Pusantu ting And then we go Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. Okay, before we disband, maybe I can make two short announcements. One is that maybe some of you know that. I have an organization called Buddhist Global Relief, which has the special mission of trying to combat chronic hunger and malnutrition around the world through sponsoring projects in many different countries to help very poor communities, disadvantaged communities, emerge from chronic poverty, hunger, and malnutrition. To learn more about this, I brought some brochures. I saw that they were already, the older brochure was on the table here. So I just invite you on the way out to pick up a brochure and then to learn about our organization. And if you find it congenial, you can help to support. Of course, we depend entirely. We don't have wealthy philanthropists supporting, you know, big foundations and institutions supporting us, but we depend primarily upon individual donors. The other thing, and I'm a little apologetic about this, on the way out, I saw that there was from my monastery on Friday. I picked up a batch of these. This is a DVD of talks that I gave at Bodhi Monastery, a place where I lived in the early 2000s. This was a series of talks on the middle-length discourses of the Buddha, the Majjimanikaya. I think there are about 120, 140 lectures on this DVD covering about 50 suttas of the Nikaya. I see that there are 10 copies here. What to do? (laughs) So if people... Isn't that online? That is, it's online also. So, I mean... It's kind of academic. Excuse me? It's kind of academic. Whether one would get this or not. Excuse me?
2: If there are
0: enough of this to go around, you can get it online. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some people like to have the DVD. Yeah, I, I, I have a whole collection of DVDs. Yeah, so. yeah. So, maybe I should put them on the table, and then people can take run them. The Excuse me? People can run to the
1: table. Or maybe
0: to avoid that. <laughs> there should be a way that I could send to those who want the DVD... I know, and you, if you don't get one, if you write your name and address on a sheet of paper, I could send them to you. Um, but if you're not so particular, whether you have the DVD or not, you can get it online. It's on the website of Bodhi Monastery. It's like my name, though I don't have any connection with the monastery. It's just coincidence. Bodhi means enlightenment, the Buddha's enlightenment. So I got that name when I was ordained. And the founders of that monastery gave it that name, they didn't name it after me. <laughs> so it's the website of Bodhi Monastery, it's in New Jersey. There might be many Bodhi monasteries because it's a common name, but the one in Lafayette, New Jersey. And then you have to look, it goes through the menu for audio and you find them all there. The bus, so there's still spaces on the bus. There, are. oh, there are. Okay, I was not going to mention because <laughs> I thought virtually all the bus, all the seats were taken. Okay, but is hers open to anybody or just people of color? People of color and accomplices. That means non-people of color who are actively engaged in the struggle to empower. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and would Chinese people be considered people of color? I did ask Reverend Angel and she said yes. <laughs> so there you are, you have a. All right. <laughs> he told me he would like to come. Oh, we would love for you to come. Yeah. And then I saw, I thought that all of the seats on the other three buses were taken, or almost taken. I mean, we can move it around, but also Reverend Angel's like, she's not saying it's just POC. Yeah. Right. But you count as POC, so you're good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So probably everybody knows that there's going to be a big, what they call the people's climate mobilization in Washington, D.C. on April 29th in order to show you know, what's been taking place with the Donald Trump administration, proposing already cutting funding for the Environmental Protection Agency, issuing these executive orders to Revive the coal, natural gas, and oil industries. Uh, trying to black out, to blank out information about climate change, to knock out President Obama's clean power, clean power plan, and reverse other regulations imposed by the Environmental Protection Agency. So to show the administration that we. Are aware what's taking place with the climate. We are deeply concerned and moved to act. So there's to be a national gathering in March in Washington, D.C. on April 29th. And the different faith communities in New York are organizing buses to go down. And so we have, we started out with the idea of having one Buddhist bus which Regina has been very diligent in organizing this. And then we thought, maybe we should expand. Maybe we could get three buses. So we got three buses, seemed to be almost filled. Then I had written earlier to Angel Kyodo Williams, (laughs) maybe a few days earlier, then I didn't get a reply at once. So I told Regina, okay, it seems that she's engaged elsewhere. So we stick with the three buses, and then shortly after I sent that email to Regina, then I got the reply from Angel saying that she's ready to come. And so then we opened up a fourth bus. So we have four buses. And what I heard, like all the different faith groups have arranging for buses to come down. So we have so many Christians in New York, Jewish people, maybe Muslim people, but which faith has the largest number of buses? The Buddhists. <laughs> so thank you all so much for your participation and attention, and I very much enjoyed teaching over this weekend. It's actually, I think this is, though I'm a New Yorker, it's the first time I've given a multi-day teaching in New York City. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah I could do that one. Okay, so let us end. OK, so let us end with three bows to the Buddha: Thank you for listening.